Can I just say that it was an absolute treat to get to go back through this game? Mostly. About one-third of a treat. Maybe two-thirds. So here's the thing. <clears throat> Age of Mythology was a game that, more or less by coincidence, I didn't find out about until a decent amount of time after it came out. Part of that is due to the flaw of Age of Mythology's release schedule. It came out three months after Warcraft 3. And, um... That was all she wrote. Now, obviously, Age of Mythology did sell well. It went platinum and everything. And obviously, a lot of people know about it. Anybody who was following the Age of series was well aware of it, of course. But I really wonder if Age of Mythology would have exploded in a greater way if it had had a better release window. Instead, we get one amazing game, one terrible expansion, and one expansion that's okay. This is all my opinion, of course. One of the things that really impressed me most about the game is how different it felt playing each person. Now, of course, you're saying, duh, because we've had that since StarCraft, which is back in, like, 98 uh, or so. But I know this is going to sound weird, but even at this point in time, finding a good strategy game where playing as a different side led to completely different strategies was still something that wasn't super common. There were still plenty of strategy games where... You get a couple different units as one given side, or maybe they cosmetically look different, but for the most part it's the same. Even Command & Conquer was having this problem at about this point in time with... Well, that's a whole other topic, so let's not get into that right now. So I get into Age of Mythology and I'm like, oh, dude, this is great. And it had the full cutscenes and it had surprisingly good voice acting. A lot of the voice actors in this are some of the lesser known voice actors, but they all do, well, most of them do a pretty good job of their roles. It also sounds very familiar to anyone who's a big Bioware fan. There's a lot of people here who also play roles over in Dragon Age, Dragon Age Origin, or Dragon Age 2, Mass Effect, you know. You're going to be hearing some repeat voices there. I also really liked how. How do I put this? I liked how it played. It was smooth. It was intuitive. All of the the interface, all of the, the structure of the gameplay was, was very just... It clicked with me perfectly. And I know that's a weird thing to talk about, but one thing I have said many, many, many times is that a strategy game lives and breathes on its UI. While there are plenty of very important things that have to happen in terms of the structure of the game and the game design itself, that UI, that is point one when it comes to me judging a, a strategy game. And Age of Mythology's UI was just, oh, yes, yes, everything's immediately self-apparent, there's a lot of at-a-glance information, and controlling it is quick, smooth, and intuitive. No problems whatsoever. And I had no problems going, getting right back into it, and just smoothly uh, playing through the game again with the extended edition or re-released edition or whatever the hell they call it. The one that came out a couple years ago. Speaking of which, this is my first time playing that. I bought it pretty much the moment I found out about it just to support it because Age of Mythology was awesome. In fact, my enthusiasm for it was so high that I forgot how crap the Titans expansion was. But I'll get to that in a minute. Let's talk about the gameplay itself. I mentioned that each size plays differently. I wasn't able to 100% verify this, but I found some articles about, you know, the making of Age of Mythology, and they hinted that this is something that they've been working on, this game, I mean, for many years prior to it actually coming out. Ensemble has actually mentioned a few times that they were thinking about doing Age of Mythology even when they were still beginning the process of making Age of Empires, the original one. 
Now, I was not able to 100% confirm that, so treat that as rumor. But I find the idea fascinating because it makes a degree of sense, doesn't it? There's a lot you can do with the Mythos thing. In a weird way, though, I'm kind of glad that they did AoE and AoE 2 first because it allowed them to get their foot in the door, get some experience, and get some strength with it. Unpopular opinion, I didn't really like Age of Empires that much. I, I certainly loved playing through it once, but there were a lot of really bad design choices, and it's clear they didn't quite understand how to make a strategy game work. Um, the AI was just bizarre and, and leaned on cheating rather than actually being intelligent or creative in order to be difficult, which was popular for the time, it's worth noting. Um, and it, it was a little bit too threadbare. I love the Egyptian campaign. I actually still, uh, as recently as about two years ago, like to replay the Egyptian campaign in AoE 1, just for fun. I also still have the manual. I should have brought it out for this, but I like to just reread the manuals for AoE and AoE 2, just for fun, because it's cool, you know, little historical stuff. I did like Age of Empires 2 quite a bit. <laughs> that one was a lot better for me. And uh, while it still had some issues that... For me personally, as far as playing through it, Age of Empires 2 was a game I played for a lot longer than Age of Empires 1. But both of those games had a, had a similar problem, and I've already mentioned it. All of the sides were basically the same, with a couple of distinctions. That is not true at all when it comes to Age of Mythology. Now, a lot of their units are fairly similar, but... What they did was they took the idea of, well, StarCraft, to put it bluntly, and took it one more step. Now, I keep relating this game to StarCraft instead of WarCraft 3, because it's kind of unfair to relate this game to WarCraft 3, just to be as honest as I can. Blizzard had, at this point in time, been pouring uh, resources and time and creative work into WarCraft 3, and had tried many new and different things to vary up the gameplay significantly, and... Orcs, humans, undead, and night elves all play wildly different from each other in every way. Different units, different abilities, different heroes, different resource management, etc. So they, they, let's just move that off to the side. But I parallel it to StarCraft, because StarCraft still had most of the same basic functions with a few things slightly different. Terrans needed supply depots and they can move, you know, they can move stuff and they had a lot of uh, micromanaging to really pull the full value out of their units. Protoss had big, strong, expensive stuff, relied on pylons, you know, uh, could warp in all sorts of weird stuff like that. And then, of course, we have the Zerg, who had mobile health, or mobile health, mobile farms, had to build on the creep, relied on weaker units that were about as expensive, etc., etc. So there were variances in the gameplay of each of the three. But compared to Age of Mythology, which Age of Mythology knocks StarCraft out of the water in terms of it, the depth and complexity of its gameplay style, I wrote down a few of the things that were most interesting to me to compare. Now, obviously, there's different units, duh. But each of the three sides has to develop favor in a different way. Now, favor is one of the smartest things Age of Mythology did, in my opinion. Favor is, is just another resource, but it's a resource that can be used for several things, myth units being the most obvious one, but also for abilities or, or for research. And favor is generated completely differently in a way that also affects your strategy in a fundamental level. Greeks, for example, need to basically sacrifice civilians in order to generate favor. Now, when I say sacrifice, what I mean is you send them off to mine favor 
and thus for the Greeks, it's the most typical approach to any given strategy game. You send workers to procure a resource. So that therefore takes up a part of your economy and the fact that certain you have to build up your economy side of things in order to accommodate this fourth resource. Right or fifth resource, I actually can't remember. Sorry, but you know this additional resource. So they mostly treat favor as anything else. But then you have the Egyptians who just build stuff, build and forget. You build this and there's favor, and you build this and there's favor. Now this similarly affects the economic impact of the Egyptians. By the way, my just real quick, my favorite faction to play of the five is the Egyptians by far. I love playing as the Egyptians. Anyways, so. The Egyptians go over and they build this stuff, so they take time and resources to construct, but once done, it's a fire and forget. It's early expense for late gain, rather than the continuous maintained gain of the Greeks. So it's more difficult to set up, but easier to long term. Which, of course, brings me to the Norse, who are basically the exact opposite of that. They gain favor by fighting and killing. And in fact, the Norse are practically the Zerg. And I don't mean that in, you know, the the typical sense. The Norse have the ability. Their basic units are also their builders. Their basic units can be built very, very early and do not cost that much. And those basic units can generate favor, which can allow you to go on a heavy myth side approach with the Norse, if you want to. Which brings me to my next point. So they have something of the weaknesses triangle going. It's actually not just a triangle, because Everything is weak to something else, and there's also counter units. Counter units is a great idea, in my opinion, something that I, I wish we'd sell more of. The whole point of a counter unit is, I'm good against that and nothing else. It is literally a hyper-specialized unit. So even if you have one counter unit versus, say, about three of the unit they're countering, they will be able to win that battle, probably, depending on how you micro them. And that's great, and I love that idea. But, so there's also, I uh, actually wrote it down here to remember, in general, I swear I wrote it down somewhere, here it is, infantry are good against cavalry, cavalry good against archers, archers are good against infantry, infantry, and there's also, you know, humans, uh, hang on, humans, heroes, myth creatures is the other ma main triangle that you see, humans being against heroes, heroes being good against myth creatures, myth creatures being good against humans, so... There's also, like I said, there's some variety to this. It's not a universal thing. And that encourages a multifaceted army. Now, <laughs> embarrassing admittance here. Right about at this point in time, uh, historically, I was just beginning to understand the strategic value of a varied army. And that's a really embarrassing thing to admit. Lord knows I'm not exactly great at strategy games, but one of my old strategies used to be very simple. Uh, a one composite army or a two composite army. A good example, back in Red Alert, the original Red Alert, it would be tanks and infantry. And that was my army. The infantry would cover any of the rocket launcher guys, and the tanks would cover everything else. Two composite army. In something like, say, the original StarCraft, before I actually started getting good at StarCraft, which I didn't start doing until about Brood War, my army, for example, for the Zerg was just Hydralisks. Because they were such a, you know, cover all, good at everything kind of a unit, I just massed Hydras and won. I actually still regret that to this day. In fact, I once did a match with a friend of mine and beat him with just Hydras, and he got actually upset at me, like legitimately upset. Now, granted, it was just a game of blah, blah, blah. But I felt really bad about that. It's like, dude, I'm sorry. I. Hmm. <laughs> 
But by about the time I've actually played Age of Mythology, I'd already played Warcraft 3, which also encourages you to have a multifaceted army in its own ways. I'm not going to cover that here. So going into Age of Mythology, I was already primed for that kind of mindset. And this is probably the game that really codified that for me. I mean, yeah, I can I can mass carriers just like anybody else can, but I, I don't want to. I want to do this and this and this and this. I want to have these five different guys. <laughs> or maybe these ten different guys. <laughs> and the more the better. It's just fun for me. And all of that basically comes from this game and the way they set it up. And all of the units being good against all of the other units. It's great stuff. It's great stuff. I also love... Um, so the the minor gods and the major gods... Actually, I hate them. They're all evil. But the point being... No, seriously, though. One of the things I love is the way that they can change your playstyle significantly. So you pick one major, and that's your major. And that gives you certain passive bonuses just for worshipping them. And you get, like, one big power that you can use once, unless you're the Atlanteans. Right? On uh, Meteor... I'm just saying, Meteor Shower, best power. Actually, Hephaestus' power is probably one of my favorites. Uh... The Vault of something, or the Vault of Plenty. I can't actually remember what it's called right now. I was even just using it today. But anyways, moving on. <clears throat> but no, the uh, the major gods obviously change your strategy a little bit. But the minor gods change it as well. And each one of them giving different bonuses to different units, or allowing you access to different units, depending on which you choose. And each time you go up a tech tier, you pick a new minor god. Thus, this allows another layer of player customization, and another layer of you being able to choose the kind of strategy you want. While there are obviously some strategies that just win, you know, there's always going to be a best strategy, I feel like Age of Mythology is one of the better RTSs that allows you to pick a strategy that you want to, because you want to, and you can make it work. And I think this interaction between the triangle, the secondary triangle, the minor gods and major gods, and the different variances between the three factions is what allows that. It's a great fun. And if I haven't talked it up enough yet, you should go buy, play this game and buy it. It's really awesome. Um, I also love how this game had a full map editor. Now, that may sound like a weird thing, because obviously Age of Empires 1 and 2 both had map editors as well, but no, I mean this had a full map editor. Full access to be able to do uh, effects, cinematic stuff, triggers. I think Age of Empires 2 had triggers as well, but I know this one did. And you could actually do custom scenarios and custom campaigns in this, similar to Warcraft 3, but you know, it's, it's, it's hard to avoid comparisons here. It was good. I also love the campaign structure, to kind of segue a little bit more into the single-player campaign. Because the campaign structure of the base campaign is you are always basically playing as the same side, but not the same faction. It allows you, obviously the Greeks and the Atlanteans kind of get the, the lion's share of the attention, since you are effectively playing Arcantos for the majority of the game. But as you're doing so, you you, know, you get some experience with you know, the the Greek people, and you kind of do this, and then you start seeing, you go to the underworld, and it's like, oh, crap, but it's okay, because there's these peaceful undead people, because Hades is cool, you know, Hades got this, and, uh, hang on, hang on, I might as well go full tilt with this, so you, you, you go to the underworld, and the shades are like, and then you make your way through the underworld, and then you end up playing as Egypt, which, by the way, is the official moment the campaign sold me back when I was first playing this. I was like, oh, dude, I actually get to play in Egypt. And you're, you're still got Arkantos, you still got Ajax, and you still got Chiron, but you're effectively playing as the Egyptians now, as Amanra joins your party. And that continues for a bit. And then you actually have Norse people showing up early and being like, we have followed the, the one-eyed giant all the way down here. We must destroy him. Which eventually segues into you going north. 
and playing as the Norse. It's, it allows you the variety of each three things while still maintaining a string, and it, it ties them together seamlessly. And that right there is what I love most about Age of Mythology, more than anything else. Even though it is a very fun game to play, the main story of the main campaign is awesome. I've, I've actually talked this up many times. In fact, I was talking about this just recently when it came to God of War 4. How much I love it when a fictional work takes multiple mythos and properly connects them to each other. Uh, sort of a similarity to the, uh, you know, the multidimensional thing or simply the fan fiction, if you will. But I love their approach here. It does it in a fairly logical way. Now, they had to rewrite a lot of how some of those mythos works in order to get them to gel together. But I felt the result was really good. It, it's clear these people did actually do their research. I mean, this this is ensemble, for God's sakes. And then they were like, okay, well, this won't work as is, so let's rewrite this and let's rewrite this and blah, blah, blah. I mean, the mere fact that Zeus is one of the good guys in this is all I need to say about that. But no, I feel like they did a good job of making it so that each of the gods feels like their own pantheon coexists with other pantheons. And that each one of them has basically a region that they affect or that they control. And that's their territory. That's that pantheon's reach. And that brings me to one of the more interesting thought processes I had during the course of this game. Why don't any of the gods who are opposed to Poseidon's plan, or Kronos' plan if you prefer, really do anything to stop him? This is probably the biggest point I have to talk about, so I'm going to go ahead and discuss this now. For those of you not aware, the whole point is that Poseidon, Loki, and Set have basically gotten together in an alliance which has been bonded together by Gargarenzes, who's the one who's actually masterminding all this. Gargarenzes is following uh, Kronos and wishes to be rewarded by, by establishing basically a new pantheon, which will then dominate all of the pantheons. Kronos and the Titans wish to make one pantheon, that is just the pantheon. Okay, That's the overall plot. Good plot, by the way. The whole point here is that Poseidon both passively and actively supports Gargarenzes and his skull many times. So does Set. And so does Loki. Loki actually is probably the most active as far as participating since he literally rocks around as Skult for, for a decent chunk of time and deliberately manipulates the heroes into being like, hey, they've got this standard from the giant, you should kill him, you know. So why doesn't anyone else intervene? I mean, Athena saves Arkantos and gives him some messages, and Osiris beats, beats down once you raise him, but that's kind of it. Oh, I suppose also Thor, Hammer, that's, that's, but my point is, one of the stated reasons that Athena gives for the, for the gods not getting involved, Zeus in particular, is they don't want to kick off a war amongst gods. In other words, they're the Federation. Hear me out. What I was seeing here is a situation similar to the, to Starfleet and the Federation when it came to dealing with the Cardassians, the Demilitarized Zone, and the Maquis. The Cardassians are already actively violating their peace treaty, and they have proof of that. But the Federation is willing to let them do that because they have a philosophy of appeasement because they want to keep this peace treaty so badly. And that's the impression I get from Zeus, which is weird, along with the other good uh, deities across the three pantheons. We really, really don't want to go into all-out war, so we're just going to kind of sort of get involved, not really get involved, even though their enemies, again, Poseidon, Set, and uh, uh, Loki, are very much directly getting involved. 
we're not going to play by the same rules because we don't want to trip off things to get even worse. But I look at that and I'm like, but they're already doing it. <laughs> it's the same thing I say about the Federation. They're already breaking the treaty, right? They're already doing something that will set off the, the a new Titanomachy, or however the hell you're supposed to pronounce that, right? Why not get involved in a far more direct fashion? It was actually one of the things that bothered me. Because this philosophy of appeasement is, well, I mean, it's, it's Lord knows it's a historical truth, and Lord knows that several of these pantheons could be argued to have the who cares mentality when it comes to things. But this is something that's going to directly affect them. Maybe this is just head in sand philosophy. I don't know. I, this is probably the only question I got for you guys. What do you think about this whole philosophy of appeasement that the deities use that are not the, you know, the bad guys? Because they, they tend to follow this almost universally. Yeah, we won't get involved, we won't get involved. Except for, like, the three little inferences where they get involved. Okay, here, I'll get involved here. But otherwise, you're on your own. I mean, don't mistake me. Obviously, for the purposes of the game, the people, that is to say the player, has to be the ones that actually get stuff done. But, come on, the bad guys are literally cheating on this. Now, of course, that's my theory. I think that from a writing perspective, the reason that the bad guys are totally cool with just directly interfering, I mean, God's sakes, the Poseidon statue... Proto-Titan there. Um, I think the reason that, that that was done from a writing perspective is to show that the bad guys cheated, but we're not willing to cheat. We won't interfere. You'll have to earn your own victory, and that'll make us better than them. You know, typical writing stuff like that. Not really a complaint, just something that really stuck in my mind the whole time. So... <laughs> I love the pace of the main campaign. All right, bandits. Okay, now we have to siege Troy. Okay, now we have to do a moving assault. Now we're in hell. Okay, now we need to defend this spot. Now we need to escort these pieces of Osiris. Then we have the dream mission, which is great. One of my favorite missions in the game. And then we have the pig mission, which is another of my favorite missions of the game. Then we have to go after the freaking giants. And the, the flow of the actual types of maps and the objectives in those maps is sufficiently varied that I never got bored. There were a couple missions where I got frustrated, mostly in the Norse area, because I'm just not that great at the Norse. But for the most part, the whole thing just flowed very, very smoothly. Wonderful pacing in the design, both from a gameplay perspective and a story perspective. Um, the... I love how much the game bothered to stay humorous, too. Like, obviously this is a very serious game, but it didn't, it had no problems with every now again breaking to just take a breath. I mean, we're facing something that's basically the end of the world, a new Titanomachy. The, the Titans establishing a new, we're the only pantheon, we're going to crush everything kind of a thing. And yet we still had lines like, and I wrote this down word for word. So, there's a giant fortress in the middle of the countryside protecting a huge pit which leads here, hell, and a cyclops that rains fire on us from the skies. I'm starting to think this might not be a bandit we're dealing with, Chiron. That's one of my favorite quotes in the whole game. I had to write that down. <laughs> I do love a lot of the characters, too. I don't have a lot to say about them specifically. But Ajax was a, was a nice introduction. Uh, Arkantos, you know, despite his more, I am the hero, still is someone who obviously takes time and effort to get used to things. He's not completely flawless, in other words, like most hero-type characters were. Amonra is amazing, and, and arguably the most competent character of the whole bunch. Chiron, of course, who was a crucial part of my army, let me tell you, Archer. Um, 
Chiron is wise beyond his 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 means, but also doesn't really know everything, so he's learning too. They did a good job, is what I'm trying to say with the characters as we went through it. I also, uh, it was really weird, like I said, I mentioned earlier the Dragon Age thing. So, uh, <laughs> Amonra is the one that really got to me the most, because she's voiced by the same woman who voices Meredith over in Dragon Age 2. And she does both voices basically the exact same way. And the whole time I'm like, oh god, oh god, Meredith's in my party, what do I do? What do I do? Mm. Now one of the things I want to comment on is one of the undercurrent plot points, which is only touched on a few times in the entirety of all three campaigns, is the idea that favor, as a resource, is a, uh, let's call it a, redu a reducing resource, like the running out of it. A finite resource, if you will. Favor, of course, being the literal representation of people's worship of the gods, and people are starting to worship them less and less over time. Obvious parallel to real-life history is obvious, but I mention that because it's one of the theories I've heard for why things go the way they do, why the pantheons in general are less capable of interacting than the titans, or and their particular minions, who have people who are still adamantly following them. But that also comes up a lot in this in the expansion, the first expansion, which is crap. Um, <clears throat> I want to share with you a brief story. How many of you have ever played a game and been like, oh my god, that was so awesome, and you loved it? Not liked, loved. It was great, and oh god, and then you replayed it, because it was that good, right? And then there's an expansion or a sequel coming out for it, and it's like, yes, oh, I can't wait to play that. And it is so much worse. Like, so many levels of worse that you're just like, what? And you're, like, confused. And you don't quite know how to make of it because it's so... Con how could this be so much worse? That's how I felt when I first played the Titans expansion. And I still had that impression this time around. It is so apparent that much, much, much less time and effort was spent on the Titans campaign than this one. I mean, this is also true from a gameplay perspective. The Atlanteans... You decided to make the Atlanteans the next faction. While I can certainly see some reason in that, as a writer and a game designer, you had a choice to make that anyone you wanted. You made the, the not-Greeks, not-Romans. Like, that's what you went with. And the Atlanteans themselves are not nearly as balanced or as varied as the other factions. In fact, the Atlanteans are so overpowered that in just about any given meta match from an actual PvP perspective, the Atlanteans are probably going to win as long as that player knows what they're doing. Unless they get Zerg rushed or ganged up on, which I've seen happen, consequently. So, you know, oh, they're playing Atlantean, charge! Like, I've seen that happen in just random, you know, free-for-all matches. <sighs> Let me really hash this out. So in the main campaign, Gargarensis, or Gargarenses, they say it both ways, is an awesome villain. He's someone who is... Uh, not he's not super Machiavellian to the point where he's behind everything constantly and always ahead of the heroes, but he is someone who is a manipulator who is smart and who he makes mistakes. In other words, he is a flawed villain. He manages to avoid that, that uh, concept of being the manipulator who is just better at everything than the heroes. It's like, why did this guy lose? No, instead, Gargarenzis is someone who is still flawed and still has limited resources at his disposal and still trying to make them work somehow. And he has run around with his limited resources and through bartering and through convincing manages to craft an alliance with all these people, with Kemzit, um, with Loki, 
and arguably with Set and with uh, with Poseidon, in order to say this is an alliance of mutual interest. Between the three of us, we'll be able to set up the situation where the new regime that we will bring in will put us into greater positions of power than we are in. And, of course, Gargarenzis himself is in this for his own personal power, and he does this whole thing, and it makes great sense, and he's a recurring feature, and that's awesome. Titans has Krios, who is literally just a manifestation of Kronos's will, who is, um, well, he's there. <laughs> he convinces the Atlanteans to follow Kronos because, well, because, you know, the, the, the favor thing and, the, and the, the reducing power of the gods. So here, you, you, you've been starving for a while. How about Kronos? He'll take care of you. Like, that's it. He was such a non-character. I remember being like, he, he actually reached the point of get off my screen because I was so disinterested in him. There's even a point during the finale cutscene where it's like, oh, Gaia shoves Kronos back down and Kronos doesn't go into Tartarus. He just gets buried in rocks. Okay, I'm sure that'll take him a good year or two to break out of. And then Krios is like, I will get away. Not in my thing. <laughs> what? <laughs> the whole thing felt like nobody put any time or effort into it, just to be as blunt as I possibly can. It doesn't help that the characters you play as the most, Castor and, and the Atlanteans, um, are idiots. Castor is like... <sighs> I'm... Krios shows up. We don't know he's Krios at the time. And he's like, hey, you know, you should you should follow Kronos. Okay. And then we will kill everyone! Is pretty much the, the progression there. Rather than the slowly in, uh, implementing reasoning behind continuing to fight that Arcantos had and his quest to fight Gargarenzis and his getting involved in other people's fights and ending up being, you know, in debt to Amonra and so helping her out with her situation and then following Gargarenzis north and then being tricked by the Norse and, or by the Loki, excuse me, and then being having to... There was a logical progression to why you kept going. In this game, in Titans, it felt more like, okay... <clears throat> The plot says you have to do this, so go do this. This is usually referred to as the idiot ball, and good lord, Castor has the idiot ball like crazy. Uh, let's see. So first, <laughs> we're going... I actually wrote down aggressively stupid is the specific wording I used in my notes here. It's like, all right, we will follow Krios, and then, oh god, the Greeks are attacking us. Die, Greeks, die! And then, of course, the Greeks who are allied with... The uh, the Egyptians who are allied with the Norse, well, all of a sudden, it's Atlantis versus everyone, but it's okay, we'll kill everyone. Yeah, power to Kronos, power to Kronos. We, hey, hey, it's Olympus. We should totally kill Olympus. Why? Because we're here. Like, I think his actual words are something along the lines of, to prove how strong we are, we don't need the gods. <laughs> and, of course, this whole time, Arkantos doesn't do anything because... Anyways... And then after all of this stretch where, where you are basically playing the cartoon villain, not just the villain, the, the, the wide, the snidely whiplash, twirling your mustache villain, Arcantos is like, dude, what the hell? And oh, I'm sorry. Everything's forgiven. Which is another thing that pisses me off in fiction when someone does something horrifically bad and then is forgiven as if it was an automatic. Like, oh, of course everything's cool. And then we go fight basically an identical series of missions where we have to go knock down some titans. And each mission is this, okay, summon up your Titan, and then go after the Titan. Summon up your Titan, and go after the Titan. And I like the idea of Titan units. I mean, I like Supreme Commander, for God's sakes. But I have to admit, 
I found some of the Titan selection a little bit lacking because they're all basically the same. They are only cosmetically different. And given that one of the big things that I love about Age of Mythologies is how different everyone plays, the fact that the Titans are basically the same was a huge letdown. Cronus looked cool, though. Prometheus, too, actually. And I like what they did with Cerberus, but otherwise it's just, really? Which brings me to the Chinese campaign. I This is my first time playing the Chinese campaign, obviously, and I have the least to say about it. In fact, I have three notes about it. I felt like the Chinese campaign was less than it should be. I, I In fact, if anything, I feel like the campaign was tacked on. Like... A decent amount of effort was put into the Chinese and into rebalancing certain things in the game. And I actually like playing as the Chinese. You know, I love the garden mechanic and the ability to choose, okay, increase favor, but also increase resources or choose which resources I get. That's a great idea. I love the idea of the immortals and the fact that they're flexible units that have to still be carefully used. You know, I like the Chinese playstyle. What I do not like is the Chinese campaign. Okay, yin and yang are out of balance because of all of the events back in the Titan expansion. Now, that makes sense. That On that one point, I'm with it. So let's go find out what's going on. Oh, my God, it's the forces of chaos. Oh, my God, it's the... Okay, we got to find this dragon. Oh, my God, Don Zhu has betrayed us for what amounts to no reason. He, he, no explanation for that is ever really given. Okay, and then Don Zhu basically becomes our opponent for several missions never explained why, I might add. And then we go to hell, because of course we go to hell. This is God of War series all over again. You always go to hell. And um, it's like, okay, hey, oh no, I will not help you. The chaos helps me. <laughs> oh, okay, well, since you've beat me, I will help you learn how to defeat the chaos. Go summon uh, Pangu. It's like, okay, fine, we'll go summon Pangu. I'm not sure how this guy will help things. I mean, I know he's the first Chinese person, but whatever. So we go and we summon Pongu, and then there's this big, not epic cutscene. It, it feels like it should be epic, but it's not where Pongu gets up. It's like, ah, yes, I am Pongu. Bam! And then Yin and Yang is restored. What? He just does that? Okay. And then Donzu's like, good job. What? Your, your words, your actions speak louder than your words. My report will say it as so. The end. What? We had no... Like, our goal was to restore yin and yang, which we didn't have any concept of how to do. Our opponents were random creatures of violence and our own ally, who had no real reason to attack us. Like, the, the closest thing to an ex excuse I've ever gotten for Donzu's actions was the fact that he wanted the dragon for himself. Okay. But he didn't get it, so why does he... Anyways... Like, I, I feel like this could have worked if more time had been spent on it. But it wasn't. Instead, it's like, it really feels like they spent all the time developing the faction and the patch and making the game playable for, you know, now. And then they're like, okay, oh, we need a campaign. It's nine missions, too. Now, I know that that expansion's usually supposed to be shorter than a main campaign, but the main campaign for Age of Mythology is 32. 32 missions of awesome Chinese is nine of play. Anyways, this is still a good game. I still recommend you pick it up. I still recommend you play through the main campaign. I had a lot of fun going back through that. I really, really did. Um, I don't really have anything else to share. I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, no, I do believe that's all I've got. 
So I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this, and I will see you guys next time.